A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Rings of Power Lorecast, where the Lorehounds your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm John, and my usual co-host David is currently journeying in the Southlands, and will return for the season finale. So today I'm joined by Jim from Bald Move, and thanks for being here, Jim. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, John. You are uh, not a Lorehound. You are Lore-adjacent. I try, but I'm just dipping my toe into these waters, yes. But I'm glad you're here, because... I feel like we don't pay attention enough to, uh, when we're deep into these details, how this is coming off to somebody who is not steeped in this stuff, who, who didn't listen to seven chapters of our uh, our prep podcast and who hasn't read The Silmarillion. So I'm going to be really interested in your takes today. I, I specifically avoided your podcast, not, not for quality <laughs> concerns, for, for uh, content concerns. I was... I'm trying to approach this from the angle of someone who's seen the movies, Lord of the Rings, uh, seen The Hobbit, I know, don't mention it, but yeah, yeah. but is coming to this show relatively ignorant about the world of Tolkien. And I think there's a valuable perspective in that, because probably a lot of people are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just as a reminder for our audience, these in-season episodes will be spoiler-free as far as future events. But our preseason coverage did have full spoilers for probably the whole show. So beware of those. But right now, you are safe. You are in the arms of an angel. So, housekeeping. Uh, this is our lore cast on the Rings of Power Season 1, Episode 4, The Great Wave. In this jam-packed episode, we have five segments. A discussion of fallen elves in the First Age. The origin story of dwarves. A deep dive into what's going on with the Amazon's rights to Tolkien's material. And an interview with uh, returning Tolkien scholar Marilyn Pukila. And then we're going to close it out with a listener feedback segment. And, as a surprise, after the credits, we're going to have a spoiler segment with just me, uh, your, your little lore guide. Is that a tour guide, but lore? Uh, and uh, we're going to go... Uh, go through it full spoilers. We're, we're not going to worry about these, these spoiler-averse people. So, before mm. we get started... Here is a quick reminder that you can send feedback to secondageatbaldmove.com, and we'll get to those questions on the next episode we record. If you want to talk Tolkien with us sooner, join us at the Bald Move Discord, link in the description, and at baldmove.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, to get all our content about the Rings of Power and other shows 
this fall, like the White Lotus and the Wheel of Time. And please, if you have a moment, rate and review our podcast to help other people find it. All right. That was a mouthful. Now, Jim, I'm going to toss the baton to you. You are, like I said, Laura Jason. How are you finding this season so far? Honestly, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Um, more than I expected to. I've been surprised once you start putting faces to names that I was unfamiliar with, with rare exception, right? There are a couple of characters I know. Right. Uh, how easy it is to follow along with what's going on, um, how well they're explaining it mostly. I do have questions, certainly, but a lot of those come from, okay, they just mentioned a name as background that I'm not sure mm-hmm. of of who that person is or where that place is. And it seems like eventually they get around to explaining more of that. So I, I learned to just be patient with this show, pick up the names as I go. Uh, of course, having a podcast, I do a lot of research um, just to make sure I do have those names in my head. But honestly, I, I feel like even without that, I'd be getting along pretty well. Yeah, they're sort of doing a little bit of that Martin three-step reveal, right? The uh, they're, they're name-dropping somebody, and the next episode, they're like, oh, yeah, remember this time when that happened? And and they're, they're sort of easing you into this deep stuff. So so I'm glad that it's it's sort of working that way. And quality-wise, I'll say it looks incredible. I mean, I don't think anybody oh, would yeah. deny that. Um, and, yeah, I, I found, I will say, the most engaging stuff to be some of the most ancillary stuff up to this mm-hmm. point. Like, the dwarves I'm finding really enjoyable with Elrond uh, and Durin. The Harfoots, I know you're not a huge fan of Harfoots, but I'm finding them adorable and enjoyable. Okay, okay. They're growing on me. I, You know what? I wasn't a fan of uh, the concept of having them in the Second Age, having them focused in the right. Second Age, but the the plot line itself is growing on me. Okay. And, yeah, I, I'm also very impressed with how they're leaving a lot of mysteries uh, open, for us to wonder uh, mm-hmm. about, say, Meteor Man or this hilt, we th- I, I assume is Sauron's blade, but... Uh, I don't know. I really don't. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I think... Uh, All right. But that's the cool thing about it is like, yeah, okay. So yeah, I can like predict a lot of this show. Mm-hmm. But there's a bunch of mysteries that I don't know anything about because either they're made up for the show or they're presenting it in an interesting way. Like, who is Adar? We're going to speculate a ton today. I don't know, but I have some theories. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like there's something for everybody in this show. Yeah, you and I might be about as diametrically opposed on what we're enjoying about this show, I think. <laughs> uh, you're enjoying all the deep lore references and hearing those things come into the picture. Um, you're really enjoying, I know, the Galadriel stuff. Uh, the Galadriel stuff is a little shakier for me, but uh, <laughs> I feel like I'll settle into it eventually. I, I will say this episode, episode four, did a lot to repair the what I felt was a pretty clunky episode three. You know, it's funny. I don't know if you listened to our episode three lore cast, but I was yes. like, yeah, this was my favorite one yet. And then uh-huh. I heard you guys going, yeah, oh, this was a shaky one. I was like, ooh, we, we got to fight this week. Uh, but but it's okay. It's okay. Uh, we're, we're making up this week and you're here on the lore cast so we can hash it all out. Oh, yeah. But I'm really enjoying it. Awesome. All right. So with that said, with all these introductions, let's get into our main topics of the week. So the first one I have here is Fallen Elves, and I'm using that as a broad term to explore the mystery of Adar, father, you know, this this orc leader who is mysterious to lorehounds and non-lorehounds alike. 
What'd you think about R, first of all? Uh, frankly, I was surprised to hear you guys say that on your podcast, that this is a creation for the show because it seems so integral to the plot. Yeah, they are making him a huge part of this plot. I mean, the Harfoots are now pretty huge part of the plot, too, and they're not, you know, Fair. they're a fan creation. Um, so, I, you know, it's, you know as much about Adar as I do. I'm just going to provide some, uh, some fun stories from the first stage to give some background on the darker side of elves. All right, that's exciting. So I, I did not pick up on the fact that he might be a fallen, what you would call a fallen elf? It's not really a category of elves, but it's more of like a catch-all term for all these stories. I know Layla, who who participates in our um, uh, Discord chats all the time, brought it up today. It was like, hey, did you guys talk about this? And I was like, you know, that's that's a good topic for tonight. Uh, so thank you for, for that suggestion. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to go through them in sort of chronological order. So let's go all the way back to when the elves first awoke. In Quivienen, big words here. Uh, it's just a, a lake. It's a water. It's Eden, basically. And so they wake up over here, and none of the Valar are aware that they're awake yet. They knew that they were coming here. They knew that they were coming in this age, uh, but they're not aware of them yet. But who's hanging out in Middle Earth already is Morgoth, and Morgoth is there, ready to mess with some elves. So he starts grabbing elves as they wander a little too far from camp. Uh, and uh, this was actually Tolkien's uh, writing of how the orcs were created in the Silmarillion that Christopher, his son, included. Now, I, I've mentioned in this podcast a few times, he's walked that back a bunch of times. Uh, I, a lot of people actually question why Christopher included this version in the Silmarillion, because it seemed like Tolkien disfavored this towards the end of his life. Um, but this was one origin story of orcs was was these elves who were taken captive by Morgoth and sort of corrupted and tortured into uh, into the orcs. So, Jim, how do you feel about elves being, uh, about orcs being uh, the, these fallen elves? Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I have a strong opinion on it. You know, all of this is new to me. And so I I feel like in these fantasy worlds, they can just, sort of happen the way you want it to happen because you're making uh -huh. up the rules, right? Well, you know, it's funny because I, I was listening to you guys on, on your podcast and, and you, you were saying there, there was something, I can't remember the exact issue, but you were like, oh, well, the rules are, you know, they, they get made up in these fantasy worlds. And I was like, okay, but it's, har it's a harder magic system than you think it is. Sure, as long as the rules are consistent, I'm okay with it. I think the issue was Shelob with Mithril. Like, she actually didn't pierce the Mithril. She, that's why she didn't kill him, is she couldn't pierce it. She gotcha. had, like, yeah. knocked him out on his head, basically. Yeah, I was mistaken on that, for sure. Oh, that's okay. I'm, I'm just like, uh, I, I think that Tolkien gets such a, uh, sort of a bad rap sometimes for having such a soft magic system, even though I think soft magic systems are a little bit of a lost art in this day. Gotcha. Uh, but... I, I think it's a much harder magic system than people realize. It's just uh, it's so spread out in his writings that it's hard to get a hold on just by reading The Lord of the Rings. Sure. So that's one origin of orcs that I think you could play with that and and say maybe Adar was one of these fallen elves who didn't make the full transformation into orc, uh, but was turned to the darkness. So that's my that's my theory number one on the identity of Adar. Now, I have a second theory, 
which is uh, later in the first age, there's another round of these kidnapping of elves. And Morgoth is hanging around all the cap- uh, the, the uh, cities of Beleriand, this elf, you know, kingdom. It's a, it's a region where all the elf kingdoms are flourishing. And, and some of them, the Noldor especially, that's Galadriel's people, uh, would wander off into the wilderness a little bit, and Morgoth would get them. And here's a quote from the Silmarillion. Morgoth used some of these for his evil purposes, and feigning to give them liberty, sent them abroad. But their wills were chained to his, and they strayed only to come back to him again. Therefore, if any of his captives escaped in truth and returned to their own people, they had little welcome and wandered alone, outlawed and desperate. Interesting. So I could see a couple of possibilities here based on that. Is is it possible that Adar is one of the elves who was brainwashed by Morgoth? Or or potentially even one of the elves that was rejected by its people after escape? I could see either one of those. You know, it's... Uh... I, I don't know if he was he was brainwashed by Morgoth because he seems to have a little bit more will than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Morgoth is in the void at this point, but Sauron sort of takes on that torch. But I think it would be really cool if he was one of these guys who escaped evil, was rejected by his own people, and then was like, well, I guess I'm just on the side of evil now, but I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah. No, that, that sounds like a cool storyline. That's a cool origin story. So I'm hoping for that one. Okay, and then my last thing with the elves is the general distinction between elves who saw the light and elves who didn't see the light, and especially the elves who chose not to see the light of the trees. So we've talked about in previous episodes how seeing the light of the two trees of Valinor that you saw in the prologue of the first episode gave the elves a little bit of je ne sais quoi, a little bit of enhancement, a little bit of wisdom and superpower and made them a little more more enhanced. So the elves were invited to see these trees. They started in Middle-earth. And there was a group called the Avari, which means the unwilling, who just refused to make this trip at all. They stayed in the east, and there's really, like, nothing written about them. So maybe Adar is one of the Avari. The only hitch with that is, why does one of the Avari know Quenya, which is the language of Western elves? Hmm. But, I mean... It's all coming from the same root. Maybe you can explain that away. Uh, it, it makes basically as much sense as uh, uh, Arendir, who's a Sylvan elf speaking Quenya, and they, they're kind of just having everybody speak Quenya in the show instead of Sindarin, which is a more common language. So we'll leave them alone on this. They could make it happen. I still favor theory, too. Jim, how do you feel about these theories? Yeah, I'm, I'm coming around to... Uh... The, the one where, you know, he he was brainwashed by Morgoth and then came back to his people and they said, no, nah, we don't want you. So now he's off doing his own thing. I like that a lot. It's a tragic origin, if that's true. Yeah, it's tragic in a way that makes the villain somewhat sympathetic, which I am always happy to see. If I can understand a villain's yeah. motivations and understand how they got there, I'm I'm 10 times more likely to be interested by that villain. Right. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting how he left Arondir to go, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I know he was delivering a message, but I feel like he could have delivered that another way. He didn't need to send Arondir, so maybe he is, like, sad that he's lost touch with his people. Could be. Okay. Now we got to head over to Khazad-dûm. We got to dig a little deeper. 
and we have to talk about the origins of dwarves because we had a lot of Doran action on this episode. We had a lot of mining. We had a lot of Disa. Uh, we were all over that kingdom that one day will become Moria. So I wanted to talk about the origins of dwarves because I think it's super interesting and we have gotten some feedback on uh, sort of the fate of dwarves and, and what their status is as being. So let's get into that. How does that sound to you, Jim? Sounds great. All right. So the dwarves have a really unique origin in this universe. So the original plan by Eru Luvatar, that's the big guy upstairs, uh, Eru Arugula, as we call him sometimes on this podcast. So Eru Luvatar had planned for two sets of children. The elves would come first, and then the men, and nothing in between. You know, the hobbits are an offshoot of men, that's fine, but we're not, we're not doing all this uh, dwarven stuff. But then... In comes Aule, who you've heard referenced as by Aule's beard in the, uh, in, the, in the dwarf little sayings. Aule is one of the Valar, and he's the smithing Vala. He's, he's, he's the god of smithing. And uh, he says, you know, I'd really like some kids of my own. So he heads on down to, uh, to the earth, and he forges them himself. He creates the dwarves, basically, like out of the earth. And he, he molds them, and he makes them look like they look, and he animates them, and they start moving. And Eru Luvatar catches wind of this, and he goes, hey, hey, daddy's home. Uh, you know, you're in trouble. What, what is this? This is not part of the plan. And Ale says, you know, I just, I just wanted kids. They're here. What can we do about this? And Eru goes, well, look at them. They're just doing exactly what you will them to do. They don't have a free will of their own. They're not even really alive. And so Ali says, oh my God, you're right. And I'll fix this. And he takes his hammer up and he holds it up to go smite them and destroy his own creation. And all of a sudden they cower in fear. And Eru Luvatar is like, ah, I gotcha. I gave him free will. Uh, so, so they're in my plan now. Don't worry about it. Uh, but we still have to follow the script a little bit, so let's put them to sleep for a while, and then after the elves are awake, we can wake them up. So that's what happens. So basically, to summarize that whole thing, Aule created the dwarves. They didn't have free will. The big guy upstairs gave them free will and gave them like a soul, basically. And uh, then they were put to sleep until the elves were awake. So it's sort of like a binding of Isaac moment when Aule is about to smite the dwarves. You know, it's uh, uh, Abraham with the, you know, sacrificing his son, uh, about to do it, and then God's like, ah, here's a lamb. Yeah, we gotcha. So it's the same deal. You know, Tolkien the Catholic is rearing his ugly head again, and uh, and you're just getting all those biblical references in here. Except in the Bible it was a test. It doesn't sound like this was a test. It sounds more like this was uh, a last-minute saving throw. Yeah, it's um so so there's a whole thing about how there was sort of a script for the universe and that was the music of the Einor which we talked about in the last episode is sort of what David thinks is the intro is about of the show. Uh but I, it, this was more of sort of an exploration in the intent of creation because you look at somebody like Aule who is intending to create because he wants children and he, he wants to do it for the joy of creation and creating beauty. And you compare that with somebody like Sauron, who's creating rings to dominate mm -hmm. and creating rings to have power. Those are two very different forms of creation. And Tolkien is very intent on telling you the difference. 
All right, so Jim, before we take our break, we have one more segment, and that one is going to feature David because right before he left for the Southlands, he called me up and we talked about the rights issues to this series. And back from the past, a shadow of the past, we have David all of the way down from the Southlands. <laughs> is it? Is that where I am? <laughs> that you're in the Southlands. Do I have to call uh, Halbrin my king? Not yet, but maybe by the end of this okay. season. That's right. I, I'm, I'm really liking this um, either Witch King or King of the Dead theories. I think those are both very cool theories. I agree. I hope it's one of them. Uh, I, I am not loving that they're doing the whole Aragorn plotline, but we'll see where they go with that. By the time this airs, something different might have happened. You mean Aquagorn or Sawyergorn? <laughs> There's a lost deep cut for you. No, I got you. Anyway. All right. So you were doing some uh, some diving, some, some digging into uh, the rights issues, which is a question that we've gotten several times from listeners. So I'm glad that you did this. It's very confusing. It seems like I'm looking at your outline and it just seems like so convoluted and basically as convoluted as the Tolkien lore itself. So... Give me an intro to this. What's going on with these rights? Yeah, I just over the last couple of days, I've seen some people in the fandom, uh, people who are fans of the shows, not fans of the whole, just the whole gamut. And it's not like it's a thing just yet, but it's uh-huh. this conversation that's burbling. And uh, I kind of got a bee in a bonnet, my uh, a bee in my bonnet about it. And I just wanted to to clarify a couple of things because I've heard some stuff out there that's not quite, I think, accurate. And I just felt that I had to use my platform to, you know. Cl- Try to clear things up from the best as as I can do on my research. All right. So the it's it's convoluted and complex on the one hand, but it's actually very simple on the other. And then this is the way to kind of think about it. Um, Tolkien sold the film rights, the film rights to Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit to United Artists back in 1969. He had a tax debt. He needed to get out from underneath it. It was a little bit of financial distress, so he sold those rights. Now, those rights have been bought and resold and distributed to various parties over the years. It went to Saul Zaints for a little while. New Line got in on the action. Warner Brothers, because they bought, or MGM bought United Artists, and somehow Warner Brothers is involved. None of that sort of matters in the sense of what you need to what one needs to understand is is that Tolkien himself sold those rights back in 1969. And it's just the film rights. Okay. So only film, you're not allowed to be on the small screen. Right. Now, the uh, we'll we'll link uh this um there there's a great article over at theonering.net about uh the the rights and some of the Amazon details of, of what's going on um and it's a really good article and it it expands on this a little bit more. Those rights actually give the rights holders quite a degree of latitude in terms of developing characters and plot lines that aren't necessarily core to the story. The rights were actually sold off in a couple of different batches. It had to do with some copyright-related issues. But it gives the film rights holders a, a lot of power for the film rights, okay? All right. So then 
when Tolkien, uh, when J.R.R. passed away, his son Christopher became the sole executor to the Legendarium. And then Christopher, and I'm not sure the exact history of it, but there is a Tolkien estate which now manages the rights and, and all the properties and all of this stuff. And right. Christopher was uh, the head of that. And he had sole executive power to decide what was done and not done with everything but the film rights. Right? Right. So uh, that, that's the infamous Tolkien estate. The, the hair will grow on your Harfoot feet before you get any more rights from them. Exactly. And I th- now I, you know, the, we can look at some of Tolkien's letters and statements. We can see some of the quotes that Christopher has made. I want to step back slightly and we're going to, you touched on this in one of our early podcasts, this, this particular quote. Stanley Unwin, who was Tolkien's um, publisher, uh, said, Stanley Unwin and I have agreed on our policy, art or cash, either very profitable terms indeed or absolute author's veto on objectionable features or alterations. Hmm. So the man himself said art or cash, right? Right. Yeah, it, it, it seems a little contradictory from what we've seen a lot, especially uh, within the fandom when people say Tolkien wouldn't have liked that, things like that. Exactly. So now we have Christopher, who is a scholar and an intellectual giant in his own right, right? He, 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 he is a, a very intelligent man, very passionate, you know, knows a lot. I mean, like studied, you know, literature and history and all that stuff on his own, became a scholar in his own, and then happened to be, you know, his father's um, um, heir apparent, not heir apparent, but you know what I mean? Like he became the executor. He brought Baron and Luthen right. to life. He brought some unfinished tales. Drew a lot of the maps. He picked up the mantle. Exactly. Absolutely. Consider that Christopher was watching his father sell those rights at whatever age he was in 1969 under duress. And then consider over the years Tolkien's reactions to various proposals and pitches and, and um, um, derivative works that did come out, the, the animated films. There was like a musical that was put on. Apparently, it's quite interesting. Um, and all of the other various bits and pieces. All right. So we've got all these different adaptations not being approved by the Tolkien estate. So what changed? So... We have Christopher, who is very against seeing any work being published. And even, I think, in 2003, he's quoted as saying, the Tolkien estate would be best advised to avoid any specific association with the films. Right. And that is in relation to the Jackson films. Very public opposition to it. Very public. Very. So, so we ha- But yet, we have Tolkien, who we've also had quoted as saying, I would draw some of the great tales in fullness and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched. The cycle should be linked to a majestic whole and yet leave scope for other minds and hands wielding paint and music and drama. So this is a very, this is an often quoted thing when we get into the uh, arguments about, you know, the, you know, should, should something be made or should, should we not? So here we have Tolkien, who we know is very, um, is always wrestling with his work, right? Would Tolkien be on the fan fiction reddits? <laughs> he would be, fl- he'd be starting most of the, he'd be bringing most of the smoke. Anyway, 
Tolkien himself has, you know, put out contradictory statements. We have Christopher, who's very against, you know, doing any rights. So during the time that Christopher was in charge of the Tolkien estate, nothing else was done. The film rights, New Line Cinema, Peter Jackson, that those rights were sold and bought and, you know, horse traded among the, the studio houses, right? Right. So then we have... Um, uh, Christopher's eldest son, Simon, who is an author, a screenwriter, and former barrister, um, but he's a novelist and screenwriter himself. Okay. An artist. He, yes, he is. He has been seen um, actively, you know, promoting, and, he, you know, there was a schism in the family between him and, and Christopher, his father, about the films. Huh. So... Christopher steps down from the executive of the Tolkien estate and then passes away, uh, I think, a couple of years after that. Right. So now we have uh, Tolkien's daughter-in-law, widow, widow of Christopher. So I tried to do find out who's actively on the estate right now. Okay. And this may be a little bit out of date, but what I could find so far was... Um, Tolkien's daughter-in-law, which is who is the widow, uh, Christopher's widow, uh, Michael George R. Tolkien, who is the grandson of um, Tolkien's grandson, son of Michael Tolkien, and Simon Tolkien, who is Tolkien's grandson from Christopher, right, who is actively opposed to any adaptations being done, where Simon is very pro, let's do adaptations. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, Christopher steps down as the executive, passes away a couple of years later. The Tolkien estate then opens up a bidding process, and Amazon and Netflix step up and say, we'll go, you know, we would like to pitch. So, they entertain, so the Tolkien estate, along with uh, HarperCollins and, uh, I believe, um, New Line Cinemas, because they had some uh, ancillary, or auxiliary rights because they made the films, um, and a number of other people entertained the pitches, and the Tolkien estate accepted Amazon's bid and creative vision. Which is fascinating because of all the rage you see online of Tolkien would have Nashing hated the this. And, the, estate would, yes. the, the estate is against any adaptation. I think that's a dated opinion, honestly. Right. So, you know, here we have, you know, we have a schism and some and contradictory information within the Tolkien family at state in the in the heirs. You know, we have a changing of the guard. We have Christopher, you know, his father, J.R. J.R.R. and Christopher, you know, they grew up in a time when movies and televisions were, uh, a, you know, were beginning their ascent into the sky. Right. And, and starting to to to. Um, become uh, more of a, f- a dominating force in entertainment. Here we have Simon, who's grown up with television and movies, right? So we have very different attitudinal, you know, we can theorize that there's going to be some attitudinal differences there. I mean, just look at TV in the 90s compared to TV posts like Mad Men Breaking Bad. It's just a right. different world. Uh, you know, Simon probably saw Lost when he was in his, like, 30s. Right. That's a different thing. So you can see why Simon is more convinced that you can tell a compelling and deep story on television than somebody like Christopher, 
who was watching Laverne and Shirley yell at each other. Well, yeah, did, did yeah, even that stuff. So I, I think Simon's around six in his six, in his sixties. So like he would have seen the phenomena of Star Wars, right. right? He would have you know been he would have been firsthand seeing the you know the the phenomena that seventy seven um, Star Wars was. Are you telling me that Jaws Star Wars is a good representation things. of dialogue and? Story. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm saying it's a phenomena, a phenomena no, as no, big no, as right. uh, I, Lord of the Rings. Was. I, I, yeah. I like Star Wars. The, the writing <laughs> is not the reason I like it. No, exactly. So here's my... Okay, so it's clear, right? So Tolkien sold the film rights. The film rights have been, you know, traded hands by a number of people. Uh, and that's, that's its own thing. The Tolkien estate has no control over that. What wasn't sold were the television rights, specifically eight episodes or less. Hmm. The Tolkien estate still has those and rights to all of the other works and, you know, all of these other derivatives, right? Like you'd have to be an IP lawyer to figure out what is exactly what. But they still own a majority of these rights. They tendered them and Amazon won the bid. Hmm. Here's my tinfoil theory hat. With Christopher gone, rest his soul, the Tolkien estate is looking out and they're looking at, they're looking downrange at eventually, and I think in the UK, the law says when you're uh, the um, 70 years after the death of an author is that the rights will roll over to become public, you know, pu- publicly accessible. That's the US rule, I think. I don't know if it's the same over there. It could be. Yeah, I, I read. So I didn't get into that particular detail of it, but I did see that floating around. So, uh-huh. so you know, somebody could quote, you know, somebody could write in and correct us. Second age at, at Bald Move. The point being is that eventually these rights are going to roll over, right? And you have uh, now Zaints sold the film rights to the Embracer Group, which is a massive Swedish video game and entertainment company. And go back and, and search our podcast history if you want to hear our chat about that. I think we talked about it for like a half hour embracer acquisition, if you look back in our podcast. Yeah, exactly. So so here's the estate, the Tolkien estate. And they're looking downrange and they're looking you know, at all that's going on around them. My guess is they said, let's get out in front of this and dominate the legendarium space. Let's find a good partner who's going to spend the money to make this look right. Can we get the Jeffrey Bezos music now? <laughs> what is the Jeffrey Bezos Jeffrey music? Jeffrey Bezos. I'm not, I'm not you know? Yeah, Bo Burnham. Oh. You got, no, I, you, you got me on that one. You don't know the Bo voice. Burnham Jeffrey Bezos song? No. No. Write in on secondageatbaldmove.com and tell David to go watch Inside by Bo Burnham on Netflix. <laughs> burn me. Burn me down. Uh, my tinfoil hat is going to protect me from all the flames that are going to come my direction. <laughs> so my guess, this is just, this is now my tinfoil theory hat thing, right? Uh, is that the estate said, let's get out in front of this and let's dominate the space. Let's put out something that is unmistakably going to set the bar so anybody else who comes you know we are going to be the new standard for what is tolkien and what is the legendarium and amazon came with the money right to make this production look like it does and yeah we've got two you know young 
showrunners who don't have a lot of experience, but I bet they're bringing in a big team around them to make sure that they, you know, are, are going to be successful. I think that's right. And uh, especially when you're seeing that now Embracer Group owns the film rights, they're already making comments about let's do solo movies in the vein of like the Obi-Wan movie and the Obi-Wan show. Right. Um, I think that you're exactly right as a Tolkien estate would rather their oversight be uh, what what makes these shows rather than Embracer Group, who doesn't have a stake in staying true to the Tolkien work. Right. So and if we look back, you know, once Christopher steps down and then um, passes away, Saul Zaints passes away, the estate is looking at, hey, the Saul Zaints company is sitting on a pile of cash and their head guy is no longer around. We're going to sell this stuff off. We're all going to take our cut and, uh, and beat feet, hmm. right? So they know that there's conversations going to happen out there around that. So why not get ahead of it? Why not dominate the space? Why not put something out there that is really phenomenal? And I just have to think that Amazon, you know, Netflix came and Amazon came and Amazon has the deeper pockets. I think that's right. So thank you very much for doing this deep dive, David. I think this was really helpful to understand these rights. The eight episode threshold is really interesting. And I think that explains a lot of... Uh, what Amazon is doing here and why sometimes it does feel a little rushed in the show. So uh, thanks for that. And we're missing you over here. I know you've not been gone that long yet, but uh, we'll, we'll keep missing you over the weeks to come. I hope you send more clips in so that we can hear how things are going in the Southlands. And uh, let us know how you're, you're finding the show. All right, John. Thanks. I uh, hope you're doing well. And uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll try and send in a few snippets here and there as I'm going along. I should be able to keep up with the show as it comes out. So um, looking forward to getting back with you to, uh, to catch up on the finale. All right. Thanks, David. I'll see you then. Thanks, John. Our next segment is going to feature someone who longtime listeners will recognize from our feedback episode, Tolkien scholar Marilyn R. Pukila, a librarian emerita. Now, Marilyn and I could go back and forth on Tolkien details forever, and we did this time, and we went for about 90 minutes. So rather than putting that all in one chunk here, we're going to break that up over a couple episodes, maybe a bonus episode. And so after the break, you're going to hear our first part of our conversation. We'll be right back. Okay, and we're back. Now, please welcome back returning guest, Marilyn R. Pukila, librarian emerita and Tolkien scholar. Marilyn, welcome back to the Lorehounds. Thanks, John. It's really great to be back. And do you want to give our audience a quick introduction to it here? Because uh, the last time you were here was in our preseason coverage. We, we have a few thousand more listeners now that the season is rolling. So, uh, so a lot of people are brand new to you. So, so who are you? What do you do? I am a research librarian emerita from Colby College. And for 35 years, while I was there, I taught a course on Tolkien sources off and on. Um, I started, first encountered Tolkien at the age of 12 when my very dearest friend and heart sister said, what do you mean you haven't read this? A la C.S. Lewis. You mean you like that stuff too? <laughs> and so it's been a part of my life for over 50 years. 
I retired in 2019. And when COVID hit, I discovered podcasts for the first time, including the Prancing Pony podcast, for which I am very honored to be um, on the research team. And I recently gave a paper at Oxenmoot on Nianna, who is one of my personal favorites. Uh, hmm. I was thrilled to see her altar in Numenor in uh, one of the episodes, which I'm sure we can talk about if that's of interest. I, I didn't even notice that, so uh, I'm I'm glad you bring that in. Yeah, no, I've I've been I've been Valar spotting, if you will, <laughs> every time <laughs> we're in Numenor. I say, oh look, 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 and I've. Uh, presented at Atsamut, and it looks like I may have a paper coming out in Amenhen, so that's terribly exciting to me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. You have far more Tolkien pedigree than I do. Uh, I just do this podcast here, but you've you've done the whole walk around the block with Tolkien. So uh, thank you so much for sharing all this knowledge with us, and I'm really looking forward to discussing this season with you because I haven't chatted with you really ever, but uh, we, we've discussed over email, but we, we haven't chatted with you as the Lorehounds since the season began. Mm-hmm. That's right. So how are you feeling this season so far? What's your general take on, if you're just looking at it as... As a viewer, as as somebody who's watching it for entertainment value, how do you feel about it so far? Entertainment value, it's fantastic. I really think they're knocking it out of the park. Um, it, it's a feast for the eyes between the sets, the costumes, and you know all the rest of that. The music actually sounds better to me in its context than it did when I was just listening. You know, they released it a couple mm. days before the first episode, and I was like, oh, I don't know, but. It just, it works beautifully. And I like the fact that there's so many excellent and varied female characters. Um, that's been very exciting to me to uh, look at them. Cause one of the courses I taught at Colby was women in myth and fairy tale. And so I looked a lot at gender tropes in throughout, you know, folktale, fairy tale, myth and so forth. And uh, there's some really, really cool stuff to dig into there. Right. And, and that's not usually a strong suit in Tolkien is uh, diverse female characters. I think they were very aware of that, and they're really doing well. 20 years ago, when the Jacksons were doing their his film, I think the whole concept of gender was still evolving. Well, it's always evolving, isn't it? But they were trying really hard to respond to that lack in Tolkien. And they did what they could in the context of the time. But wow, I can really see how 20 years, there has been some wonderful, wonderful extension done and wonderful progress being made. And uh I've been enjoying that. Plus, I think they very wisely have put in uh, several different mysteries to keep the Tolkien knowledgeable viewers engaged. Because you know, we don't, we still don't know who Halbrand is. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with Bronwyn and Theo, and and so we have stuff to mull over. Whereas somebody who doesn't know from Tolkien is still probably trying to keep Eregion separate from Valinor, and hmm. <laughs> you know, getting all that straight. And just enjoying it on on sort of that very excellent, but you know, first level, if you will. So, yeah, I think they've got a good a good show on their hands, and I just hope that they continue at this level or even increase. What about you? Right, yeah, I'm I'm loving it too so far. I mean, just just as a spectacle, it is its own thing. Uh, and, and you know, it's funny the way you said there are mysteries for the lore people too, because I said that to Jim earlier. I said. He, you know, he goes, well, I don't know what this means. And I said, well, I don't either, uh, because it's it's not canon. It's not something that we're worried about um, in, in, in as the lore hounds where we're just 
viewing this for the first time like you, like who is Adar? I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you. Um, I'm a little worried that's going to break lore. That's one of my, my few worries so far. Uh, but uh, but it could be uh, that we're being misdirected as the lore people too. But yeah, I'm loving the show so far. I think that four was a really strong episode. Um, I think that, you know, this exploration of Numenor and of the origins of it and sort of the complex feelings of the Edine there uh, were really captivating and really bringing me forward in the story and making me care about these characters, both canon and non-canon. Yeah, well, the, the, the way I feel the potential for intense distress, if Halbrand does turn out to be you know, Sauron or the Witch King or whatever. <laughs> They're just being so incredibly sneaky about dropping little hints and implications and, you know, all of all of the Gandalfisms that they've given to the stranger um, are really quite extraordinary. And that kind of leads me to the contrarian view of, no, I really still think he's a blue wizard. But I also freely admit that I want him to be a blue wizard. So, you know, that's cognitive bias, which is one of the things I taught as a research librarian <laughs> is recognizing your own bias before you get in so that you'll understand that you might be, you know, seeing some things more than others in order to confirm what you really want to have happen. Well, I've been a blue wizard lobbyist propagandist uh, since before the show started. And we just took yeah. a poll recently on the Bald Move Discord server on our forums where we said, who do you think it is? And Blue Wizard just blew everybody else out of the park. And I said, I've been a successful brainwasher. I could have been <laughs> Sauron in another life. Well, there you go. Yeah, and that, that's one of the really interesting, creepy, um, incredibly talented things that they've done. Giving Halbrand so many of those characteristics and qualities that we have actually seen described to him in the literature. You know, that that he can persuade people, that he can be charming, that, you know, and then he loses a temper and breaks somebody's arm, which I was a little over the top for me, I have to say. I was, is this TV 14? Well, of course, I haven't watched TV in a very long time, so I really don't know what the standards are these days. Um, but it certainly turned my stomach a little bit. So, you know, they're just really being so crafty about making sure that the balance could tip either way and keeping us guessing. Exactly. I've, I've heard so many theories on Halbrand. One interesting one is they think he might be the king of the dead. Uh, that, oh, that's yeah. One I've no, heard. I, I like that. I like that one a lot. And I hope that he is going to be an independent character of any of the other things, except that could work because we really have very little backstory on the king of the dead. But, you know, if he's Theo's father and Bronwyn's former, then what does that mean about him possibly being Sauron? And, and you know, Sauron can't engender children because of the whole thing with Melian, you know, anytime the Vala, the uh, Maiar assume human form, every time they take an action like eating or drinking or making love, they further lock themselves into the, the, the trammels and chains of the flesh of Arda, I think is the quote from, from Silmarillion. Mm. So it seems unlikely to me that Sauron is going to have been siring any kids. Yeah, I, I really doubt that Theo is is coming from Sauron. I think that more likely um, we'll see him go darker later, uh, it, that, that more than anything else. I don't think that there's necessarily a darkness in Theo's past. No. No, and I'd, I'd kind of be disappointed if they go with the whole Anakin thing of, you know, you killed my mother, I have to keep alive somehow. Sure, you got a ring that'll keep me alive. Great, I'll take it. Um, mm -hmm. That, I don't know. That would be kind of disappointing to me, but 
I suppose it's not, you know, it's not a storyline that's unique to Star Wars, certainly, but um, I always want to see people be even more creative than that. I agree, and I'm I'm hoping that they subvert some of the tracks that they've laid so far. Right, right. Well, they keep, you know, throughout all the interviews, people kept saying, you know, everything that you think you know, you're not going to know. It's, I don't remember the exact wording, but, you know, they keep emphasizing how much we're going to be surprised by things. So, I adore Bronwyn. I absolutely adore her. From the minute I saw her poster and saw that she had her sickle and I said, okay, this is someone associated with agriculture, possibly a healer. I really hope she gets to meet the antwives at some point. Mm. I mean, there's just all these associations that I can see. And she does strike me as having at some point been regal or royal. So that could put her in line to have been King Halbrand's wife or whatever. But, you know, we're speculating wildly, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) We are. But why don't we speculate a little bit more and talk about the Harfoots? So I know a lot of people were puzzled by the, the scene with the Harfoots when they had what I can only call a ritual concerning the end of the season and they're about to migrate to the grove and so forth. What I saw there was what many people might call a Samhain ritual, which is the third of the three harvest festivals at the end of the year in which you honor your beloved dead. So some people said Mm -hmm. that they thought the chant was really boring and why didn't they write a whole poem and it's the same two lines over and over. Well, that's a classic ritual practice and they're using it as a means to come together as a group there were children in that dance. It's a teaching method. This is how you're inculcating your community's values. And while they were sitting together, they were basically having a remembrance of their beloved dead right. and the people who had gone on and, you know, Poppy having lost her entire family. And there's been a lot of criticism about the practice of leaving people behind. This was a common behavior for migratory subsistence peoples in many corners of the world. And from our contemporary individualistic age, it seems horrible. And it was horrible. And the point of the ritual was to help make it a little less horrible, Mm -hmm. to recognize that this was a loss and we need to grieve it. And so now I'm back to Nienna again. Um, The ways that human beings devise to deal with loss, to deal with the fact of mortality. And I just loved it. I thought it was wonderful. The, the, the great big heads that represented, you know, their, their greatest foes, you know, the wolves and the ravens and, and very, the raven in particular, very much associated with this time of year in, in um, certain um, historical and contemporary pagan practices. So if you can look at it through that particular lens, I think you'll see something rather different from you know, people have called it social Darwinism and, oh, this is brutal. It's brutal. Well, life is brutal. And that's what they're trying to convey that, yes, we've had these horrible things happen to us. Not all of us wanted to make the choices that we had to make for our community to survive. Now, it could well be that one of the major functions um, for Nori and for the stranger is to shift them to a slightly different way. I don't think we have enough time to see that happen because we're talking about a mega cultural shift and I hope they don't try to cram it into five seasons. You don't think the stranger is going to single-handedly build the Shire? Um, <laughs> golly, I think that's above his pay grade somehow. Yeah, it might be. It <laughs> it's might certainly be. not in his job description. <laughs> there's there's um, 
northern I can't remember oh, I can't remember the name of the tribe Athabascan there's an Athabascan legend about two old women who are left behind by their tribe at a particular time and how they survive through that experience and actually wind up in a better position than their tribe when the tribe actually returns to that place again it's a it's a story that was told to another person who was given permission to publish it in a book uh Velma Wilson two old women and it's exactly the same circumstance the people were suffering these two old women could not be as productive as they once had been and so they decided they would leave them behind and how the women dealt with it but also how the community dealt with it and that was what i was seeing in in this basic assumption that you know if you stay i can't see i can't even remember even though it's only two lines um follow the trail don't stray nobody, off the road no, nobody gets, no, left, nobody gets behind. left behind yeah. nobody strays off the trail um has multiple meanings so yeah it's only two lines but start looking at it more deeply and you'll find that it has a lot of significance and now, i think it's unfair to them and it's judging them by our standards to say well, this is brutal social darwinism right no i i agree with that i i guess the only darkness i see in it is sort of a tolkien-esque darkness of clinging to life clinging to your old ways uh rather than protecting the weak and because I do think that they are letting go of their weak in order to protect themselves a little bit. And, and I think that that might be something that Tolkien would have frowned upon with these people. Because you look at the hobbits in the Third Age, and they very much do take care of each other. I mean, I don't even know how they make money, how they, how they have a functioning. I guess, I guess Tolkien didn't need them to make money. He wanted them to be locavores. He wanted them to... Uh, to be all these small businesses that just work together, but that society is is you know his English utopia where nobody does get left behind because there's nowhere they're going. There's nobody's running off until Lotho decides to start buying up more land. Well, and Lotho decides to tear down the old mill and put up a new one. There was no ideal society in any corner of Tolkien's Middle Earth, hmm. to my mind. That's true. I think we try to, we want to see it that way. We want to hold out the hope that somewhere there could be this perfect place, which is exactly what the Numenorians are doing. Right. They were given this perfect place and they wanted to stay perfect and they had to die. <laughs> and it's very hard for them to see that as part of the perfection. Right. But this right. is what Tolkien struggled with his whole life. How is it that, as he understood it, a good deity could permit a 12-year-old child to lose his only parent how does that square with a good deity and that's why his works are so much about understanding death how again as i'll say it how is it that a, for a sentient person live with the knowledge that they're going to die and we've been making up stories and telling tales and creating rituals all of our sentient lives to try and help us cope with that fact which is why Nana is so crucial to Middle Earth, because we have to be able to mourn. And that's why it's so important that Gandalf spent time with her, because she taught him pity and patience. Mm. Now, yes, it would be lovely if we could have the Harfoots learn a way to incorporate their weakest. How are they going to do that? What has to change for that to take place? Is it feasible for it to happen in, you know, five seasons of eight to 10 episodes. 
It depends. You know, um, I, I don't know if you've been following House of the Dragon. Very different show. No. Uh, but they're doing six months to two year time jumps and things like that between episodes. So that depends. Are they going to do something like that between seasons? I could see them doing that. Um, that would but, be interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say this. I thought it wasn't going to work. The first time that they did it, I said, that might not work. That might ruin some dramatic tension. But it's it's good storytelling so far. They are they are making me care about these characters. So I'll be curious to see how they handle long stretches of time in the stories that we're seeing. Because as you and I know, we're looking at hundreds to thousands of years of history, depending on the issue. Um, and they've just compressed this to hell <laughs> they've they've just uh, compressed it so far down and yeah. uh maybe they will stretch it out a little bit more maybe we are looking at the seeds being sown of these issues it'll be interesting to see i mean with that they seem to be adhering pretty much to chronology yes as opposed to you know throwing things every in a cocked hat and having them come up every which way right um i think it's really important if we're going to judge at all that we learn to judge societies on their own terms and not our terms. Right. I mean, eventually we know the hobbits become more settled, but actually here's an interesting thought. Okay. Wide speculations here. I think somebody suggested that the grove is actually a place where they're going to meet with the antwives. Hmm. And so if we see them starting to learn like about agriculture, because it was agriculture that led to settled systems. Before that, you had hunter-gatherers who followed, you know, followed the game, followed the seasons for when certain things were blooming and ripening in certain places. But once you have agriculture, you're fixed. It's your fields. You got to stay there. What, as as uh, Marigold said, you know, men have their fields of grain. Right. So that means a tremendous change in their psyche, in their folkways, in their culture, in their interactions with one another, we're no longer going to have our caravans. We're going to have fields to tend. That How can that possibly happen in the space of only 500 years or a thousand? I mean, yep. it, it, took, it took humans, uh, agriculture was developed like 10,000 BCE. According right. to the best research, I can't remember how many thousands of years prior to that creatures that we would think of as humans lived. Well, I'm wondering, I I can't remember if Bree predated the Shire or vice oh, yeah. versa. I, but yes, yes, you're right. Um, so if that happened, is it possible that we'll see the stranger sort of leading the hobbits to the Harfoots, whatever they are, uh, to be a little bit more comfortable with big people? learn their ways, and then create their own civilization based on that. Because that, I could see that too. That that would be much speedier than developing this on their own. Yeah, I mean, it's almost certainly going to be something introduced to them. Although you could have somebody like Marigold be really smart and think, hey, well, they already have it in a sense. They know they have to come back to this particular place at this particular time for this particular food source to be available to them. The biggest raspberries in the world. Oh, it was blackberries, right? Blackberries, uh, <laughs> which weren't even theirs. It was an abandoned farm, if I if I remember correctly. Right. So what happens if some seeds stick to Marigold's skirt one day and she plops down in another place and she comes back the following season and, oh, look, there's wheat sprouting here. There's never been wheat sprouting here before. How did that happen? <laughs> and you start to get the idea. But it's said that the antlies taught agriculture to humans. 
Now, clearly, mm. the message has gotten through to you know regular sized humans, if you will. Is it going to come through to the Harfoots? I don't know. Right. And also, I, I guess we have to take into account too that this is a world that is mythological and not necessarily realistic, uh, because you know you look at the, the hobbits. In the amount of thousands of years that, that we've had since the men were created, mm-hmm. if we're going by real world evolution patterns, there is no way that the hobbits could have evol- evolved from men in that short amount of time. So I, I well, guess they, all, they I, sprang up simultaneously is another possibility. Right, right. I it's uh but but I'm I'm assuming that if they came from men, that's not a realistic evolutionary time. So you know, I'm I'm willing to give them a little bit of leeway on how much time it takes a society to develop. But you have to make allowances for the fact that Tolkien, at the time he was writing, was working with the knowledge base of his time. And back then, they didn't know how many thousands of years evolution mm-hmm. had taken place for different things to happen. He always did his best to ensure that every aspect of his created world as he presented it could be viable in our primary world. Mm. And in fact, towards the end of his life, it was very sad. He began to be really ups- uncertain about the fact that he had created a flat world and that the sun and moon came along so much later and all, you know, the creation stories that we love about the two trees. He was considering getting rid of them. Right. To make them match more closely to, you know, scientific fact, quote unquote. I think that was part of his whole personal emotional development. There's a wonderful book by John Rose Grant called Tolkien Enchantment and Loss that goes into that in some detail. But I think he would have wanted every detail of his mythology to equal what he knew of the real world. And to the extent that he could, he did. When he wasn't thinking in mythic time. And the time of the two trees was mythic time. Okay. All right. Well, that's good to keep in mind because I—that's something that I didn't really realize was that he was—he was that set on making it match, yeah, real evolution, science, uh, you know, physics as it was known at the time. Right. Right. So that's that's really fascinating. I mean, think how much time and energy he put into making sure that the phases of the moon all equated. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, uh, I I think it, that delayed the publication of the Lord of the Rings, didn't it? He had to go back and edit. A few chapters. <laughs> and eight out of ten fantasy writers today just wouldn't care. Right. Even to make it coherent, you know. Right. They would right. just say, oh, well, no one's going to notice. And, you know, eight out of ten readers probably wouldn't notice. But those of us who read Tolkien, we, we've got this thing now. <laughs> well, he's trained us. He's trained us exactly. to want it to match up. Whereas other world, I mean, look at Harry Potter. Oh, boy, is that a mess when you try to line things up. So, yeah. all right, Marilyn. Well, I've had so much fun doing this wild speculation with you today and getting into the basics of this show. Next week, we're going to have more of this interview out. But for now, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to have feedback with Jim. Okay, I've got Jim back with me. 
because we've got some listener feedback. Y'all have been busy this week, and this is the most feedback we've had yet, so keep it coming. And uh, Jim, if you want to start with some feedback, I'm happy to start answering. Absolutely. Start off with Chris, who says, Hi guys, I was wondering what we know about the East in Middle-earth, seeing as there was all this Blue Wizard talk. From the movies, I know the elephant guys come from there, and that's about it. I guess Tolkien didn't write a lot about there, but are there reasons why we don't have much story there, or why it's such a mystery, even this many centuries back in Rings of Power or before? What is known? Okay, the short answer is colonialism. (laughs) That's always the short answer. Yes. uh, Tolkien had this, you know, Eurocentric view, and the East was the, the unknown Asia continent. Uh, so, so here's what we do know. It was called Rune, which is Quenya for East. Uh, and not a lot of written is written about it, but both the men and elves awoke in the East. We know that Quivienen, uh, and the, and the origin of men were both in the East. Uh, and we know that, you know, this is sort of Lord of the Rings spoilers, but I'm assuming that pretty much everybody's on board with that at this point. So the men who lived there had basically a lot of warring tribes. They unite under Sauron and eventually they have to be made peace with, uh, by, by Aragorn after he becomes King. So that's pretty much all we know about what's happening in the East. There's really not a lot going on. I was actually kind of hoping for more exploration of the East in this show, but I guess that requires too much fan fiction and I, and they probably don't want to go hmm. too deep into that and offend people. So that's it. All right. Next up is Rob, who says, you mentioned the sand patterns in the opener are made by resonance. Could this also be a nod to the way the dwarves decide where to dig by singing to the mountain and the contrast of the orc's destruction? Just a thought. Thanks for these episodes. Okay, so I think that's a super cool idea. Uh, what do you think, Jim? Yeah, I mean, it's it seems to fit right in with what they're doing, which I, I absolutely love the way they've portrayed the dwarves so far and their rituals and customs. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I hadn't heard of this dwarvish singing to rocks. I mean, they, you know, they have their songs, but uh, it actually reminds me of something in Wheel of Time where uh, the ogiers in that universe sing to trees to make the wood grow better. And uh, so it's, it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's interesting. I wonder, if, I wonder if any of the writers are Wheel of Time fans. <laughs> it could be. I, I wouldn't doubt it, actually. Uh, I, I like how it's just the equivalent of sonar in our modern society, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, look, you don't. What do you need Sona for? You got magic. Sure. All right, let's go over to Odd. I guess that's quite an odd name. Yep. Quick question. So I'm lost here. How old is Isildur and his father Elendil at this point? Are they playing loose with the timeline, or do I need to hit the books? So they are playing super loose with the timeline. Uh, I'm I'm not sure exactly how old they are, but they are playing very loose with this timeline. A lot of this stuff happens over, you know decades or even hundreds of years in some cases so uh i would just go along with the show it's okay if isildur is young he's got he's got a lot more things to do in his life all right let's check out this message from sean bon jovi says hey guys i've heard in the past as well as on your show about the idea that saruman and sauron's plans for empowering their armies were meant to be analogous to the industrial revolution i've always loved this idea and found the visual imagery surrounding the effects of the industrialization to be very affecting Considering the evolution from Harfoot to Hobbit, I think I see some neat parallels to human historical innovation as well. The Harfoots in the show are nomadic foragers, not that dissimilar to early humanity. When we catch back up to the Hobbits and Lord of the Rings, 
we see a decidedly agrarian society with permanent and lovingly tended dwellings. To me, this implies something happened in between that had an effect similar to the human agricultural revolution. Could the meteor man be the cause of the settling of the Harfoots and their eventual transition into hobbits? If he teaches them the secrets to cultivating plants and livestock, they might begin to develop an agrarian society. As a result, they build communities and stronger ties to one another since they no longer have regular reason to leave people behind. This shift helps produce members of the community like Sam, Frodo, Mary, and Pippin, all very much of the mind that no one gets left behind. It's Sam's refusal to abandon Frodo that winds up turning the tide against Sauron and the ring in the end. It would be awesome if that same entity that was destroyed by the hobbits also had a hand in their evolution. Thoughts? I think that Meteor Man's going to single-handedly build the Shire. The whole thing. <laughs> okay. That's how it it's going to work. take him long, right? Yeah, 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 like yeah, being yeah. scale, Building scale models. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love this idea, though. Thank, thank you, Sean Bonjo. I just got your name for the first time ever. It's Sheen Bean. I know it's Sean Bean, but I, everybody likes to call him Sheen Bean. And, uh, you know, you know Baromir. <laughs> Uh, I just got that now, so I, I hope you appreciate that. I appreciate you, um, but yeah, no, I love this idea. This this whole uh, maybe if this is Gandalf, because it seems like they're heavily hinting at that. You know, the hobbits teach Gandalf how to wander, and Gandalf teaches the hobbits how to stay still. Yeah, like it. Good inversion. All right, and finally we have Ted saying, one thing I haven't been able to figure out in this world is what happens to the different races when they die or are killed. Your deep dives on elves seem pretty clear that their spirits return to Valinor. If so, why wouldn't Galadriel be excited to be reunited with Finrod and return in episode one? Wouldn't they be back together? Wouldn't most elves embrace death to return to the Undying Lands? This is a great question. So the Galadriel thing is kind of complicated because there's two aspects to it. First of all, When elves die, their spirits go back to Valinor, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily get a new body. That is something that needs to be approved by their superiors, by by the Valar. So um, there's only a limited amount of people who have done that. Now, Finrod was actually one of those people. So Finrod is hanging out in Valinor, just chilling, having a margarita right now. But uh, And so, so is Galadriel's father, by the way. He never left. Um, he never left Valinor. He stayed there. So um, it is very heartbreaking to see her turn around, but I think that's part of it. I think that's part of what you understand about this is Galadriel at least has a hope of seeing her brother and father if she returns to Valinor and she's like, I'm, I'm just not ready. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling conflicted and I'm just not ready. Makes sense. Uh, he continues, as for men, Gandalf explains death to Pippin in a great scene in the Return of the King movie. It seems men have an afterlife. Where is that? Shouldn't men aspire to it? Just assuming it's not Valinor. This also seems critical for the future motivations of Numenorians on the show. And dwarves seem altogether different. Are they just gone when they die? Knowing the ultimate fates of these races seems critical for understanding motivations in the new show. So, as far as the afterlife of men, this is where you go to Catholicism. (laughs) It is beyond... And we don't know what it is. Now, when they first die, men go to the Halls of Mandos, which is the same place that elves go. But they're just there as a waiting room. And then they go there uh, on their way to the true afterlife, which is somewhere outside the bounds of, of Arda. And nobody really knows 
what it is. But they, it seems like what Tolkien is trying to get across is that they get sort of a relief from creation, whereas elves are tied to it and they get all the benefits of that, but they also never really get true rest. And so that's sort of the gift of men is that they get to truly rest. Now you bring in dwarves. Nobody knows, even more than men. It's even worse because remember we just talked about that weird origin. Well, what do you do with that? Because they were created by Aule, but then they were sort of given the breath of life by Eru Luvatar. Basically, the dwarves are hopeful that Eru's got something planned. Uh, some of them theorize that they're going to go to the man afterlife. Some of them theorize that there's another dwarvish place. Maybe it'll be like Valhalla or something like that, you know. Mm. Uh, but uh, really, nobody knows. It's even worse than with men. Uh, and, and I will say elves are known to wonder about men particularly, about like what happens to them, because they met men before any men had died. And then uh, they, they were like, oh, this is weird. Why are they just getting tired and dying? Because we don't do that. So, uh, yeah, this is an ongoing conversation that people have here. I think it would be fitting if they got to meet Ale and then he smashed him with a hammer. <laughs> He's just ready to finish the job. Yeah. All right. Well, Jim, I really appreciate you coming in today. You've you've saved us while David is in the Southlands. Uh, you, you've been the hero of today, and I, I appreciate your takes on, uh, on on how this show is going for people who aren't steeped in this book stuff. So thank you so much for that. I think we're going to have you on one more time and Aaron a couple times, so you'll be back, and we'll be on your feedback episode. Do you want to plug the Doug Too Deep stuff here? Oh, sure. Yeah. If you're looking for more of my uninformed take on the show, uh, <laughs> as just a Lord of the Rings movie fan, you can find me over at the Doug Too Deep podcast, where the aforementioned Aaron and I uh, host a weekly recap show for uh, the episodes of Rings of Power. And you can write into them directly at Doug Too Deep at baldmove.com. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to wrap it up here. But if you are non spoiler averse, we're going to have our inaugural spoiler segment after the credits. So if you if you don't want spoilers, this is it. But if not, we'll see you after the credits. So thanks so much, and we'll see you next week. The Rings of Power Lorecast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondage at baldmove.com or write into Jim and Aaron at dug2deep at baldmove.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds. And for more Rings of Power content, Subscribe to Dug Too Deep on your favorite podcasting platform. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the first ever spoiler edition of the Rings of Power Lorecast. We had a couple spoilery questions and we wanted to answer them, but we didn't want to go spoil the rest of the audience that we promised to keep away from second aid spoilers for. So... Question one is from Doug, who actually wrote into Doug Too Deep, but Jim and Aaron passed it my way so I could do full spoilers. So here we go. We know Sauron was imprisoned and talks his way out of it in Numenor and was able to corrupt. Halbrand is now imprisoned. All right, so I'll address them point by point. So here's the first one. Uh, Sauron was taken prisoner by the Numenorians. They knew who he was. He actually wasn't deceiving them of, about who he was. Now, they could change that for the show, but that's against the uh, appendices. Point two is Halbrand is drawn to the smith and wants to make weapons. He even says he is the best weapon maker in the world or something like that. Okay, this is a good point. Three, he beat the ass of five Numenorians, similar to a prologue, Lord of the Rings, Sauron's badass, coming, cutting through 20 people at a time once he wears the ring. 
dumb Numenorians, but Numenorians lost to a so-called low man? No way. He is not a low man. True, although he could still be a king like he told Galadriel. Galadriel hears about a spy discussing the backup plan. We have a spy here, right in Numenor. All right. Number five. A great place for Sauron to hide for a thousand years is right in the open. He took form of the line of southern kings, who swore allegiance to Sauron. When he says, Southerns have no king, he is being completely honest. He's not one. It's right there in the open. He is an imposter. All right, that's true, although I'll say that Sauron does not need to always tell the truth. It's not like a like a rule that he has to be honest about who he is. So, um, but that's true. He could be telling the truth in this case. Number six, he says, looks can be deceiving to Galadriel, but this was about him, not her. Seven, he was happy to sacrifice his boatmates so he could reach Numenor. He was going to Numenor all along. This is a great point because we don't know where he was going. He was sailing west. There's only two things west of Middle-earth. There's Numenor and the Undying Lands, and he definitely can't go to the Undying Lands, so what's he doing out there? So let's keep an eye on this. Number eight, bringing a recognizable historic elf like Galadriel was a better way for him to get to Numenor without being killed trying to get into the harbor. Nine, he was going to Numenor to corrupt Numenor because the backup plan is now working in force and he needs the ring. I'm not sure what you mean by this, Doug, because the rings have not been made yet. As, as far as we know, I mean, Celebrimbor is preparing for a big project, we, but we know that Celebrimbor and his city are going to create the ring. So not sure what you mean by that. Number 10, and there's no mention of Halbrand in any appendix, yet he's important. So this is where his lack of identity sort of plays into the mystery, because if he is the Witch King, if he's the King of the Dead... Maybe that's what is happening, because they definitely reference a king betraying Isildur in The Lord of the Rings in the Second Age. So this could be just a case of we don't know who he is exactly yet. Eleven, who is Adar? The witch king running the shop and keeping the grunts in line while Halbrand makes the rings. That's pretty cool. Although I think that the witch king is probably a man. Um, You know, maybe Adar is... uh, a twist on that. Maybe they decided to make him an elf. Doug continues, there are some things out of sequence from the appendix, but the showrunners can be playing with time frame, and frankly, the appendix could be wrong. That's true because the appendices are supposed to be in-universe writings. Also, Halbrand could unite the men when he comes back with Numenorians, only to not reveal himself as Sauron until the end of the season. Adar is a misdirect. Think of the end of the Clone Wars, Christopher Lee meeting up with the Dark Sidious at the end of the movie. As Yoda might have said, the apprentice he is, not the master. All right, Doug, I'm, I'm with you on, on some of your points. I'm, I'm, a little, uh, I'm a little disagreeable about some of the other points, but I think let's keep an eye on your theory and feel free to write in as we go along so we can track how some of these points come out into play. And our other spoiler question is from Harry. Harry says, Erendil penetrates the Enchanted Isles with the Silmaril. Then the war ensues and the Edine are rewarded with Numenor. Later, when they sail in force to Valinor, they make it all the way to the shores and even set foot on it. Then Numenor is ruined and Ammon set beyond the spheres of the world so that that can't happen again. But how did it happen at all? What about the Enchanted Islands? 
I tried finding some mention of it in the Silmarillion, about the enchantment being lifted, but failed. Short of rereading it entirely, I was wondering if you had an answer. Okay, so from my understanding, in the Second Age, the Valar and Valinor were not completely inaccessible. It was a place in the same plane of existence as Middle-earth and as the rest of Arda, the planet. Uh, it's only after the Second Age, it's only after Eru Iluvatar remakes the world from Flat Earth to Round Earth, that Valinor and the Undying Lands entirely are taken away from the main realm of existence. And that's when you have this sort of magical barrier. But before that, you could sail there. And so that's why, why the Numenorians are able to just sail, make a challenging trip, and get there. So I hope that helps. Please write in again if you have any other questions. And uh, that's the end of our spoiler segment. But uh, if you guys keep writing in spoiler questions, I'll keep doing these. So thanks, and see you next week. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies, Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>